to Ezekiel chapter 38. You'll find it on page 859 in the blue Bible in front of you, if you don't have your own Bible. Uh, Here we find a story of a great battle. In fact, the story is told twice with slightly different emphases in first chapter 38 and then chapter 39. Uh, We're going to read just the first of those two chapters. Ezekiel chapter 38. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with swords and helmets, also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Togomorah from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will invade a land that has recovered from war whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people, Israel, like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I will declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble. And every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. 
I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the. It was called the war to end all wars. It began with the assassination of a minor ruler in a small corner of a long forgotten empire in Europe. Yet it was to become the world's uh, first global conflict. Some 30 countries from five continents fought on a scale never before seen by mankind. And when the bloodshed was finally exhausted, no one could tell exactly how many had been killed. But historians estimate that up to 10 million men lost their lives on the battlefield with another 20 million wounded. An entire generation of young men wiped out. Never again, they said. And under the leadership of President Woodrow Wilson, the League of Nations was formed to head off any potential conflicts. But just 20 years later, that great war was renamed World War I. As a war on an even greater magnitude erupted with even more horrifying evil, death and destruction. The war to end all wars became just another in a long line of wars to come. On this Memorial Day, we honor those who have uh, sacrificed their lives in battle. But we do so sadly recognizing that there will be more to come. And we ask, will there ever be an end to all this carnage? Will there ever be a war to end all wars? Of course, many say no. The ancient Greeks thought of human history as a, uh, an ever-recurring series of cycles, mirroring the cycles of nature. So don't get your hopes up. What goes around comes around. We've seen it before. It will happen again. And this basically uh, pessimistic view of the world is echoed by the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, he reflects upon life under the sun. That is, life viewed without a divine perspective. Generations come, generations go, he writes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. History, you see, is just cyclical. It's, it's like the seasons. Round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. Or worse, you see, some people see history as simply random. It's headed nowhere in particular. There's no sense to it at all. Uh, there might be what we call technological progress. I mean, our computers do get better every year. But that hasn't resulted in human progress. I mean, not in human peace, human fulfillment, Human flourishing. Human history just plods along with no apparent purpose, no goal, no end. Nothing is ever resolved. Evil continues to raise its ugly head. Injustice abounds and try as we might, it will never be eradicated. We live, we die, the world goes on. That's it. 
It's kind of like some of those uh, <clears throat> serial dramas that are on TV. You watch some of those things. You get the feeling that the writers are just making this up as they go along, hoping their show will be renewed for another year. And I watch these things sometimes. And I ask myself, where is this going? Well, nowhere. Will there ever be an end to wars on this earth? A war to end all wars in a meaningless world. Why would anyone ever think there would be? But, you know, still deep inside, we know that something's wrong with this world. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. And we somehow believe that there ought to be justice, that the Osama bin Ladens of this world do deserve their punishment. I mean, it's just not right that nations continue to go to war with other nations, that evil continues to abound. But is there really any hope that things could ever be any different? You see, the Bible declares that there is. The Bible declares that there will be a war to end all wars. For you see, the Bible declares unequivocally that history is not random. History is not cyclical. History is lineal. History is headed somewhere. It is moving purposefully in a very definite direction. The Lord God is the author of this great story. It is his story. And in this great story, he's revealing something of his own glorious nature as a holy, righteous, gracious, merciful, and just God. And the Bible affirms that he knows the end from the beginning. And the story of human history has a start. And it will have a finish. A glorious finish. Resulting in the coming of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this universal human aspiration for peace on this troubled earth will be realized. And God's good plan to restore his fallen creation and to redeem a people for himself, for his own glory, that plan, that purpose will be fulfilled. And to bring it about, the Lord promises to bring all evil to judgment before he ushers in his final kingdom of glory. There will be a final conflict between good and evil, between the forces of depravity and his divine power. There will be a war to end all wars. The prophets had spoken of it. Isaiah declares it very clearly in Isaiah chapter two. The Lord will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In Isaiah 9, the prophet says that there will come a day when every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Or in Isaiah, our Psalm 46, which we read earlier, come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And I want you to see that in our passage this morning from the prophet Ezekiel, he pictures that same reality. Ezekiel speaks of that day. In terms of the divine defeat of the armies of Gog of the land of Magog. 
Now, to understand this passage in Ezekiel 38, 39 rightly, I think we have to place it in the context of Ezekiel's whole book. As we've seen over the last few months, this book was carefully crafted with most of the oracles carefully dated, placed in chronological order. And the first 24 chapters were addressed to Israel during the period of the exile in Babylon before Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 587 B.C. And so thematically, those chapters are dominated by the announcement of God's judgment on his sinful people. These people needed to understand, as Ezekiel had come to understand, just how holy and righteous the Lord their God was. And how deserving they were of his wrath in turning away from him to serve other gods. And then in chapter 33, the announcement of the city's fall after a long siege comes to Ezekiel in Babylon. And it was now clear to everyone, God's wrath had been poured out on Israel's sin. Even the Lord's holy temple was not spared. His glory had now departed from Jerusalem. And from that point on, Ezekiel's message is much more focused on God's mercy and His grace. As the Lord promised that He would be faithful to His covenant promise to Abraham, that He would not abandon His people. And for the sake of his holy name, he had punished his people and sent them into exile. And equally, for the sake of his holy name, he will act as their shepherd, gathering his lost sheep, restoring them to their land, putting his spirit within them and bringing blessing upon them in the sight of all nations. And this whole section, chapters 33 to chapter 37, concludes with this magnificent promise. Listen to these words. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation, the land on the mountains of Israel. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with their uh, any of their other offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. You see, this is Ezekiel's gospel message. God's people will be cleansed. God's glory will return to Israel. He will dwell with them. His sanctuary will be among them forever. And he will live with them in an everlasting covenant of peace. Their children, their children's children will live in safety and be secure in the land forever. And the Lord will do all of this for the purpose of making his glory known among the nations. Now, this seems to be, it strikes me as a, a perfect place to end the book. But an even more fitting 
way to end this book is to provide a picture of what the fulfillment of this promise looks like in a kind of virtual reality world that's given to us in the vision that we'll look at in the next two weeks in chapters 40 to 48. A vision of a glorious new temple and a perfectly restored land and people with the Lord living in their midst. So how does this prophecy against Gog of Magog in chapters 38 and 39 fit into all of this? Now, one might have expected to find this oracle against one of the enemies of Israel uh, to be placed somewhere in chapters 25 to 32. Now, there, as you recall, we find a series of prophetic denunciations of nations like Egypt and Moab and Tyre and Babylon delivered during or shortly after the siege of Jerusalem. But most of those prophecies were carefully dated and they were directed against historical nations of Ezekiel's own day. What we have in chapters 38 and 39 is different. You see, first, the prophecy of these chapters refers very vaguely to future years, verse 8. After many days, verse 8. In the days to come, verse 16. And second, it addresses an unknown enemy, Gog of Magog. There is no reference to such a person or place in the whole of the Old Testament or in any ancient writings that predate Ezekiel. And third, the situation that's assumed here is much different from that of chapters 25 to 32. Instead of referring to events surrounding the exile, here the setting is some unspecified future in which the exiles have already returned to the land. They are recovered from war and they're living peaceably in safety and security when suddenly they're attacked by the armies of Gog of Magog. So, so why do we have this violent interruption of this very serene situation? And why has this been placed immediately after the great promise of Ezekiel chapter 37 and immediately before the vision of a glorious future in chapters 40 to 48? The best answer, it seems to me, is that the salvation of the people of God cannot be complete without the judgment of the enemies of God. The Lord in his grace has dealt with the evil in the hearts of his people. He promises to to give them a new heart, a new spirit. In fact, to put his spirit within them. Now he must deal with the evil that remains in the world. For you see, God's kingdom can only come in its fullness when all that opposes God's righteous rule is rooted out. Finally and completely. That's why you see there must be. A war to end all wars. The spiritual war against the forces of evil that began in the Garden of Eden and continued to this day, that spiritual war will see its final battle. And this morning, as we consider this description of this last battle, I want us to focus on four central truths revealed here that I believe will ultimately give us great hope. Now, the first is the simple truth. That human evil is real. Human evil is real. Now, as I said, no one knows who this Gog from the land of Magog is. But through history, many people have thought they did. Uh, The early church father Ambrose saw Gog in the faces of the terrible onslaught of the Goths when they attacked the Roman Empire. Uh, Martin Luther identified Gog of the land of Magog with the dreaded Turks of his day who were attacking Europe from the east. 
In the early 20th century, popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible, Gog was identified with the uh, Soviet Empire. Now, how, you might ask? Well, instead of translating this as Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, the word chief in Hebrew, Rosh, was considered a place name. Thus, Gog is the prince of Rosh. And since he comes from the north, it seems only right that this Rosh should really be a cryptic reference to Russia. Meshach then must therefore refer to Moscow and Tubal, none other than to Tobolsk, a historical capital, Siberia. I don't buy it. I think it's better to ask, who is Gog in the passage itself? And the answer there is quite clear. Gog is the epitome of evil. I mean, look at him. He gathers a massive army, a great horde to plunder and pillage the people of God. Verse 10, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. You see, this is a totally unprovoked attack on unsuspecting, unprotected, peaceable people. It is indeed an evil scheme. I mean, you could say at least Osama bin Laden had some sort of ideological reason for sending planes into the World Trade Center. This attack will be for purely material gain. This is evil, pure and simple. And in later Jewish literature, this Gog of Magog became a a cipher, a symbol of the evil human forces opposing the rule of God. Unlike the name Hitler in our vocabulary. Human evil is real. And it's seen here displayed in the actions of this Gog of Magog. Now, what do I mean when I say that evil is real? I mean that there are human acts that are ultimately morally inexcusable and that they deserve judgment. They cannot simply be blamed on poor parenting or lack of education or negative cultural influences. Now, I don't doubt that those factors and more affect us significantly and could be mitigating circumstances as we make human judgments. But God knows the heart. And when God looks into the human heart, there is still something there he calls evil. Something which is morally inexcusable in his eyes and is therefore offensive to his holiness. And we dare not deny it. And some in our culture try to. They deny the reality of evil. But, you know, I did find it interesting in all the discussions I heard about the death of Osama bin Laden. That undoubtedly it was the opinion of the vast majority of people that he deserved what he got. What he had done was evil and it deserved judgment. And that, you see, is what this picture of Gog, of Magog, displays for us. Real human evil that deserves God's judgment. Now, I find it interesting also to observe how these chapters from Ezekiel are used in the New Testament book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. 
And you can hear echoes of these events in the three great battle scenes of that book. In Revelation 16, the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19, the battle occurs at the glorious return of Christ. And then Revelation 20, where Gog and Magog are explicitly mentioned at the battle at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ with his saints. And, you know, that last battle is particularly fitting as an application of this passage for that battle takes place after a long period, a millennium under the peaceful rule of the government of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that period, we read that Satan is released from being bound and he immediately leads a human rebellion against the Lord. Even after a thousand years under the rule of Christ, there are still those who rebel against him. You see, our, our passage teaches us not only that, that human evil is real, but also that it's implacable. That is, it is resolute, it is intransigent, it is unyielding, it is unbending, it is unshakable, it is unwavering. It will not simply fade away if we provide better jobs, improve our schools, Offer more art appreciation courses. It's not a result of simply a lack of knowledge. Think about it. Nazi Germany was among the most educated and culturally sophisticated countries in the world in the mid-1930s. Satan has more knowledge than any of us will ever have. You see, evil runs deeper than that. And this is why there must be a war to end all wars. Evil must be dealt with if God is to usher in his kingdom into this world. Now, in the book of Revelation, we see this repeatedly. Even as the Lord is pouring out his wrath, he's revealing his glory in spectacular ways. There are still those who refuse to repent and worship him. And I think we need to get this straight in our heads. Hell will not be full of repentant sinners longing to join the heavenly choir in singing praises to the Lamb upon His throne. No. Hell will be full of unyielding rebels confirmed in their corruption with darkened hearts firmly set against the glory of God. Human evil is real. And it is implacable. Well, then, does that mean that, that human evil will somehow overrule the rule of God? Does it mean that God's good purposes will be foiled and frustrated? Does this mean that somehow love doesn't win in the end? Does the Bible give us a view that the Lord would like to do something about evil if he could, but he's as powerless as we are to overcome the powers of evil at work in the world? Is that, is that what we're to believe? No, not at all. You see, even as our passage asserts the reality of this implacable evil in humanity, just as strongly it asserts a second truth. That is the truth of the full and complete sovereignty of God. Look again at this passage. God's sovereignty is affirmed first in the certainty of his victory in this final battle. Verse 18. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, 
I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble. Every wall will fall to the ground. You see, this is not some match between two conference champions in the Super Bowl, which the outcome is very much in doubt. This is the sovereign Lord here. And there's no mention of any armies on his side, human or otherwise. This is the Lord's battle. It will be the Lord's victory with no help from us. This is a supernatural event. Verse 22, I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstone, burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. Or in chapter 39, verse 5, Speaking to Og, you will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. Game over. God's sovereignty here is complete, and it will be seen to be complete on that day. But there's something else here that declares God's sovereignty. And in the process, we see that God's sovereignty over his world is not only complete, it's also mysterious. For this passage, in no uncertain terms, declares that it is the Lord himself who raises up this Gog of Magog and who incites him to come with his armies against his people, Israel. In verse 4, the Lord depicts Gog almost like a fish that he catches for this very purpose. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army. Verse 16. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land. Chapter 39, verse 2. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Now, this attack on this secure and unsuspecting people, it's an evil act. It is an evil scheme hatched in Gog's own mind. Verse 10, yet at the same time, it's under the sovereign rule of the Lord himself. This is a great mystery. Gog is responsible for what he does. But verse 17 suggests that the prophets had prophesied this for years, that the Lord would bring him against the people of Israel. Gog of Magog could not take one step toward this attack if he were not permitted to do so by the sovereign Lord. And might, one might even say from this passage, if he were not brought by the Sovereign Lord. This is a great mystery. How human beings can be morally responsible for their evil actions while those same actions somehow remain under the sovereign rule of God. I don't know how it works. It is beyond me, but the Bible clearly affirms both of these to be true. Man is responsible. God is sovereign. Just as in the book of Acts. We read that Judas's evil act in betraying Jesus was also a part of God's set purpose. And that when Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired with the Jews to execute Jesus, they were doing, quote, what God's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Acts 4.28. Now, some people stumble over this. They think it's impossible to recognize the reality of evil with the sovereignty of a good God. I'm not one of those who stumbles over this. I humbly accept that God knows what he's doing better than I do. 
that he can be trusted to do what will ultimately be seen in the end to be perfectly just and good and right. And, you know, sometimes you you engage life and you think, well, how can this be? How could God ever allow such a thing as this to happen? How could God possibly use this awful situation for his own glory? But just remember, he's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God who gave his own son to endure the evil of a Roman crucifixion. As the means by which to display his love and grace toward us. How can we not trust him? I freely admit there's much that is mysterious to us in this world, but I hold these truths together because the Bible holds these truths together. The reality of human evil and the complete sovereignty of a good and just God. And I urge you to do the same. But again, let me emphasize this point. These are not two equal and opposing forces. The forces of good, the forces of evil, forever locked in mortal combat. No, not at all. The Lord God Almighty will overcome all that is evil fully and completely. For thirdly, we see in our passage that God's judgment of all evil is certain. Verse 22, I will execute judgment upon him, we read. Or chapter 39, verse 8, it is coming. It will surely take place, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. It will come. This day of the Lord, this judgment day, it's one of the great certainties of the Bible. Set out from the very beginning, when you eat of the forbidden fruit, you will die. The devil tries to deny it and to deceive us into thinking otherwise, but it's true. And you know, deep inside, we know it's true. There is an inner voice in us all that speaks of the reality of our moral accountability before God. That one day we will stand before our maker to give an account for the choices that we have made. It is coming. This day of God's judgment, it is certain. And just as certainly, our passage here this morning tells us that God's judgment is horrifying. Just look at how the outcome of this last great battle is described. Verse 22, I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him. Or then I want you to turn to chapter 39. Look at verses 17 to 20. This is absolutely gruesome. Let me read it to you. Verse 17 of chapter 39. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble. Come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men. Drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs, goats and bulls. All of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table, you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. 
Now, this carnage will be so great, we read in 39.12, that it will take seven months to bury the bodies in order to cleanse the land. Now, I don't think this is a literal description of what will happen. Any more than the battle scene itself is a literal description, unless you think there will be some great future battle fought on horseback with bows and arrows. This is a graphic pictorial this is, this is graphic pictorial language couched in the categories of Ezekiel's world. But it is language deliberately chosen to depict a horrible reality. For that's what God's judgment is. And you know, the language of our Lord Jesus Christ is no less graphic and no less horrific. Those rejected as subjects of the kingdom, Jesus said, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And stressing the seriousness of sin, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. That is a place, Jesus says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the Apostle Paul echoes these words. Those who do not obey the gospel, he writes, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. And finally, the book of Revelation speaks in these harrowing tones. Those who drink of the wine of God's fury will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. You see, hell in the Bible is pictured as a place of burning fire, emphasizing its physical torment. See, there God pours out his wrath against evil. And at the same time, you see, hell is displayed as a place of darkness, blackest darkness, emphasizing alienation and a banishment from God's presence. There God hides his face from all that is contrary to his nature. And finally, hell is characterized by death and destruction as we see evil's corrupting effect on what God had created good And you see, hell may be understood as the culmination of the effects of sin and the confirmation of God's opposition to it. It is both the inexorable result of a human choice and the active and deliberate judgment of God. So when you think about this, the the wrath of God, the alienation from God, corruption of evil, it's illustrated, I think, in the very first sin. You know, Adam and Eve, they incurred the wrath of God through the curse, which resulted in physical suffering, strenuous work, painful childbirth. They were alienated from God. They were cast from the garden. And then their their nature was corrupted through the spread of sin and death to all their descendants. And fallen humanity continues to experience these effects unless they are rescued by God's grace in the gospel. Apart from that rescue, you see, that state of wrath, alienation, corruption will be confirmed. It will be intensified. It will be made permanent when at the judgment God's verdict of condemnation is pronounced and the sentence is executed in that ongoing reality the Bible calls hell. Does that seem 
horrifying to you? It should. For it is. Are you offended by it? This horrible judgment of God. This notion of an eternal how. Could it be that you've simply not grasped the enormity of the evil of rebelling against a holy and righteous God? Think about it this way. I'll use his name once again. Osama bin Laden deserved what he got. Not because he killed 3,000 chickens or even 3,000 dogs, God forbid. No, Osama bin Laden deserved what he got because he killed 3,000 human beings. He killed men and women created in the image of God. He failed to honor the sacredness of human life. How much more will those deserve what they get on the day of judgment who have not honored the sacredness of God himself. Our passage has one more important truth to teach us. It affirms that one day we will see with perfect clarity that this horrifying judgment is exactly what all evil deserves. And when this happens, God's redemptive purpose will be fulfilled. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like in the next two weeks as we look at the vision of chapters 40 to 48. But here, God's people are given the assurance that when God's redemptive purpose in salvation and in judgment is fulfilled, it will bring glory to God. Chapter 38, verse 16, the Lord says to Gog, you will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O God, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. 39.21, I will display my glory among the nations and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their And so the primary purpose of this whole passage, Ezekiel 38 and 39, in fact, the primary purpose of the the whole of the book of, of Ezekiel is the full and final revelation of Yahweh, the Lord, as God and the acknowledgement by Israel and all the nations of his true identity and the justice of his ways. Who or whatever Gog was or is or will be, His sole reason for existence is to display the glory of God. History. History, you see, is his story. And it's going somewhere. And surely as we travel through time, we will encounter gogs along the way. Human and satanic opposition to God and his people. History is littered with gogs. Those who thought they can eradicate the people of God, they have not triumphed so far. And this prophetic vision affirms that they never will. But, you know, as we look at the extension of this vision in the book of Revelation, we're led to anticipate that the battle between God and his enemies will ultimately come to a climactic finality. 
in which all the forces of Satan and those who have aligned with him will be defeated by the power of Christ and they will be destroyed forever. He will fully and finally eradicate evil in his world so that his covenant of peace will be everlasting. Is this just idle dreaming? Is this a naive fantasy? How can we know this is true? I tell you, we can know where history is headed because its glorious conclusion has already begun. It has begun in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus rose from the grave, Satan was defeated and the power of evil was broken. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father as Lord of all. And he promised that he will return to gather his people to himself and to complete what he has begun. Yes, there will be a war to end all wars. And the question is, when it comes, whose side will you be on? Let's pray. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Lord, as we hear this word of truth, Lord, may we run to where grace and peace and rescue and salvation can be found. The cross of our Lord Jesus. There, your wrath has been poured out. Your judgment has been executed. But you took it upon yourself. In your own son. For all those who would come to you in faith. Oh Lord, may we see what you have done. May we see the victory that is there in the, the, the empty tomb. May we know that Jesus is even now reigning as Lord, the right hand of the Father. And may we believe in truth that he will come again in all his glory. Lord, may we understand your great and glorious saving purposes in salvation and in judgment. May we offer ourselves for your glory as we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.